Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is January 23rd, 2013, and before introducing today's guest, I want to thank everyone who emailed me your three favorite episodes of 2012. I appreciated knowing what you liked, and I'm happy to announce that virtually every episode was someone's favorite. But more than that, I so much appreciated the feedback you gave me about EconTalk generally, how you listen, what you've learned from it, how it's touched you or changed you. It was very inspiring, uh, and it makes me want to make 2013 bigger and better. So please keep listening. Please keep sharing the program with your friends and family. And here are the top 10 episodes as voted by you, and they're actually 11 because there was a, uh, a three-way tie for ninth. So going from 11 uh, – well, it's 11 episodes, ninth was the three-way tie. Going from nine down, they were as follows – Zingali's on crony capitalism, Yong on science, Borofsky on bailouts. Those were tied for ninth. The eighth most favorited was Otter on disability. The seventh, Cochran on healthcare. The sixth, Turner on organic farming. The fifth, Anderson on manufacturing. And the fourth, Davidson on manufacturing. The top three were very close together, uh, so close that given the uh, lack of scientific reliability of this poll, I'm just going to list them in alphabetical order. Munger on lock, Taleb on antifragility, and Taubes on why we get fat. So again, thanks so much. Uh, if you missed any of those, please do check them out, and uh, I hope we'll do this again every year. Now for today's guest. Uh, he is Lewis Michael Seidman. He is the Carmack Waterhouse Professor of Constitutional Law at the Georgetown University Law Center. His latest book is Constitutional Disobedience. Mike, welcome to Econ Talk. Well, I, it's it's a privilege to be on your show, and, and uh, so my ambition is to make the top 10. Yeah, good luck. We'll see. And no, I think right. That's my ambition with every show, uh, <laughs> the, 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 and to make it hard for our listeners to choose, which many people, uh, to, my, to my gratitude uh, and satisfaction, complained about. Our, <laughs> our topic for today is a rather provocative piece you wrote for the New York Times on December 30th, 2012, titled, Let's Give Up on the Constitution. It's an unusual stance for a professor of constitutional law. You open the piece saying, quote, as the nation teeters at the edge of fiscal chaos, observers are reaching the conclusion that the American system of government is broken. But almost no one blames the culprit, our insistence on obedience to the Constitution with all its archaic, idiosyncratic, and downright evil provisions. Strong words. You got a lot of uh, feedback on this piece, I'm sure. What's your argument? Well, um, the argument's really very simple, and actually I would have thought not all that controversial. Um, the basic insight is this. Um, this is our country. Um, we live in it. We have the right to have the kind of country we want. Uh, we would not accept uh, rule by France or rule by the United Nations, and for the same reasons, we shouldn't accept rule by a relatively small group of people who probably did not uh, represent a majority even at the time they lived, but in any event have been dead for several hundred years. Um, now, that's not to say that that is to say the people who wrote the Constitution. Now, that's not to say that they didn't get some things right. Um, there are some uh, terrific things in the Constitution. And just to clarify, I did not say the Constitution was evil. I said some provisions of it are evil, and if you like, we can go into which ones. But some provisions are certainly not evil. But my basic point is this. Um, for those provisions that are, are worthy of our respect, we ought to follow them because they're worthy of our respect and not because uh, it so happens that people thought they were worthy of our respect um, several hundred years ago. So that's the basic argument. Uh, now, obviously, there's much more to it, and there are a zillion objections that people can make, but I assume we'll get into all of that yeah, let, as, as well, let's the conversation start, goes on. Yeah, let's start with the basic uh, 
basic point that we should just take the good parts. Um, I'd start with the problem that what you and I might think are the good parts might not be the same. What do we do do then? Of course not. So um, we have to uh, work that out the way we work um, everything else out in our society. And by the way, I I don't think that – Getting rid of constitutional disobedience would lead to the dismantling of, of the uh, you know the basic things that um, we are used to. So we have long traditions in this country. Um, we have ways of doing things. Um, um, even some things that uh, if we started over again, we might do differently. It might not be worth changing. So so I think much of um, uh, the structure of our government would would easily survive. There'd still be a House and a Senate, and uh, probably, although not necessarily, a Supreme Court. There would be states. Uh, the president would serve for four years. Um, but the one thing that would be different would be if somebody challenged one of those arrangements. Uh, it would not be a sufficient answer just to say, "Well, you can't do that because the Constitution uh, prohibits it." And so how would how would we decide when faced with one of those choices? So, so for example, um, a lot of people don't like um, the Second Amendment. People don't like parts which the the right to bear arms. Some people don't like the first parts of the First Amendment, what they consider freedom of speech or religious freedom. So let's say uh, you and I disagree about a piece of those, or members of Congress disagree. How would those be settled right. without so, reference to the Constitution? I'm, I'm, that's a terrific question. I'm going to start with a unsatisfactory answer or one that I think you'll find unsatisfactory. But then if if you'll let me, I think I might um, make it more satisfactory. So, so the unsatisfactory answer is I don't know exactly how those things would be worked out. Um, they would come out the way they came out. Um, now um, – let me elaborate on that in a way that may uh, make it more satisfactory. And I want to make a couple of points. Uh, the first point is this. Um, there are other countries in the world um, that don't have constitutions. Um, the United Kingdom, most prominently, but also New Zealand, Israel. Um, those countries, the last time I looked, haven't devolved into chaos um, they work things out, and they come out the way they come out, um, um, even though nobody is allowed to say, you can't do that because it's unconstitutional. So so we have some models out there, and we know this is not a crazy idea that it, it, um, it works. The second point is, um, you mentioned the Second Amendment and um, the First Amendment. Um, well, they're just two of my happened, favorites, so I just picked okay, them. Okay, <laughs> well, those are two good ones, and they happen to come at the beginning, so we can talk about them. Um, as it happens, um, the, the situation you describe uh, without a constitution exists with one. So, uh, uh, certainly the First Amendment and to some extent the Second Amendment are written in very ambiguous language. Agreed. And people, and people now uh, disagree and disagree fiercely about what what the First and Second Amendment mean. So it's not as if the existence of those amendments standing alone um, uh, resolve the controversy. Um, we, we have the controversy anyway, um, and we have mechanisms for uh, settling the controversy, and I don't think those mechanisms would um, would go away if we, if we got rid of... Um, got rid of constitutional obligation. Right, but the mechanisms are well specified. So I think the challenge would be that if you went well, they're, they're, you need a different mechanism. They're not so well specified actually. So if you actually look at the constitution, it's not at all clear, for example, that the Supreme Court has the last word on the meaning of the constitution. That's something that is a practice that is long-standing. It's part of our traditions, True, but, but it's not clearly in the Constitution. It's true. So that is, that is a norm, uh, what, what Hayek would call a law, even though it's not legislated, that is, has emerged 
as how this system works. And But I presume that's what you want to change. So if you want to change that, and I, and I certainly agree with you that it's – You mean the Supreme Court – Being um, the arbiter of what no, is constitutional. No, I, I actually – well, I think the Supreme Court shouldn't be the arbiter of what's constitutional. Um, I, I think that I, – I don't take a position on – uh, whether we ought to have an elite body uh, somewhat uh, separated from the political branches that imposes its views of political morality on the country and has the last word on that. I think actually there's something to be said for that. There are obviously some things to be said against it. Um, but But my argument doesn't entail... Um, eliminating a body that served that function. Um, I, what, what the argument does entail is that the body that serves that function ought to be honest about it, what, what it's doing. And in fact, if you look at how the Supreme Court settles uh, disputes about political morality in our country today, there's very little that ties that, or nothing that ties it to the Constitution. So really the important decisions like the decision uh, outlawing segregated schools or uh, creating an abortion right or limiting affirmative action or protecting the rights of uh, gay men and lesbians, those decisions um, have no, uh, basically no grounding in the Constitution. Uh, they are some combination of uh, the justices' views of political morality uh, their views of our traditions, their interpretation of their own prior precedent. And if we're going to have a body that acts like that, I think we need to be honest with the American people and, and come clean and make clear that that's what it's doing. Yeah, now, now we're finding some common ground uh, because uh, I would argue, and I'm sure a lot of listeners out there are thinking the same thing, that, that your viewpoint's been adopted for a long time, that we have – except in a few protected areas, speech, religion, guns, maybe uh, those three, um, except for in a few protected areas, uh, the court has pretty much let Congress have its way, certainly in economic regulation, uh, certainly in taxation and what's allowed, uh, certainly in, in how Congress spends our money. All those areas, the Constitution is given a sort of lip service, but – if necessary, they get around it. Um, and yeah, but I, that goes back I, to Roosevelt, a, if not, if not we, earlier. A place where we might disagree, I, I think the Constitution's had very little to say about the protected areas. So, for example, let, let's talk about, for a moment, about um, the prohibition on segregated education. Um, um, a few people dispute this, but I, the vast majority of uh, people who've studied it um, think that the framers of the 14th Amendment um, would certainly not have um, read their words as prohibiting uh, segregated schools. Indeed, the um, the, the galleries uh, that watched Congress pass the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment being the Equal Protection Clause. That's what the court relied on in Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. In 1954, sorry, um, the galleries that watched uh, Congress pass the 14th Amendment were segregated by race by order of Congress, and Congress had passed a law segregating the schools uh, in the District of Columbia. So. Um, that's a case where um, one of the pillars of our uh, understandings of the country um, was created in violation of the Constitution. And indeed, Justice Robert Jackson, one of the most revered members of the Supreme Court in the 20th century, made clear to his colleagues when he voted for Brown that he himself thought the Constitution uh, did not uh, – he himself thought that the, the result could not be grounded in the Constitution, but that he was voting it for it nonetheless on grounds of political uh, expedience and morality. Right. And there were many other examples um, examples like that. So when, when people say, um, you know, the country's going to fall apart if we start disobeying the Constitution, um, 
one thing I say in response is, well, look around you. Um, um, many of the things that have in fact kept the country together have been blatant uh, violations of the Constitution and, and were understood by the people who did them as violations at the time they did them. Of course, some people think the country is falling apart. Uh, and, uh, it, it, and it may be, but I, I don't think many people think it, it's falling apart, for example, because Thomas Jefferson uh, purchased the Louisiana Territory. Uh, but Jefferson himself um, um, made perfectly clear that he thought that was a violation of the Constitution. And he did it anyway because he thought it was best for the country. Right. Well, I want to push back on that in a second, but but before I do that, I, I want you to talk about constitutional disobedience generally, which uh, you've written about and you invoke it in your article that arguing that it has a long history. You mentioned Jefferson. Talk about some of the other examples that you might want to refer to. Um, before I do that, uh, I hope you won't mind if I if I just say um, it is a real pleasure to have a intelligent conversation with somebody who's skeptical about my argument. Um, over the last several weeks, I've gotten uh, something over a thousand abusive emails, yeah. um, many of them anti-Semitic, yeah. some of them threatening violence. So it's, this is a pleasure. Uh, and, well, um, and I get to do it every week, so I'm lucky. But, uh, what, <laughs> what a great job you have. Thank you. So, so you want some other examples of constitutional disobedience? Yeah. Is that what you yeah, that are important yeah, so, that you refer to in the article that I think are interesting. Okay. So, ironically, we can start with the Constitution itself. Um, the framers of the Constitution, um, the, 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 the uh, congressional directive to them was not to write a new Constitution, but to propose amendments to the Articles of Confederation. And the Articles of Confederation were very clear about the amendment process. Um, it required uh, the ratification by the state legislatures of all 13 states. As soon as George Washington and his colleagues got to Philadelphia, they decided to disobey the, the directive and to violate the Articles of Confederation. They tore up the articles, wrote a new constitution, uh, and provided for ratification not by state legislatures, but by popularly elected conventions, and not by all 13 states, but uh, they said that nine would be sufficient. And indeed, when the Constitution went into effect and when the first uh, Congress met, uh, two of the states, North Carolina and Rhode Island, had not ratified the Constitution. So the Constitution itself, uh, paradoxically perhaps, was unconstitutional. Um, um, other sort of foundational events in our history are also uh, either outright violations or constitutionally questionable. So um, my favorite example, uh, we're now celebrating uh, the 150th anniversary of it, is the um, Emancipation Proclamation. Um, it was common ground, uh, a view shared by everybody, including Lincoln and including uh, most abolitionists that the Constitution prohibited the um, interfering with slavery in the states where it already existed. Um, Lincoln um, violated that understanding, I think, and I think it was a correct understanding, when he issued the uh, uh, Emancipation Proclamation. Now, originally, um, this was justified as a temporary exercise of the president's uh, war-making powers as commander-in-chief. But um, even um, at the time it was uh, issued, most people understood it was much more than that, that it changed the purpose of the war and that there was no going back and that slavery was going to be abolished. And certainly by the end of the war, uh, that was Lincoln's understanding and that was the country's understanding. That was just clearly expressed in the second inaugural and in the Gettysburg Address where he says uh, there, there's a new birth of freedom. Um, so th the abolition of slavery was accomplished not by constitutional processes, but by the force of arms in violation of the Constitution. 
And when the Constitution finally caught up in 1866 through the passage of the 13th Amendment, the amendment itself was adopted uh, by mechanisms which were constitutionally questionable. Um, that's another example. <laughs> do you want to talk about those, or can we? No, do that's you, fine. We talk I, about some know, others. I think what, what's interesting, of course, is I you know I think most, if not all, listeners would say, yeah, those were good things. I'm glad they happened. You know, the question is, what road do we go down when we risk leaving the rule of law? Now, we've, I'm, I'm we've not left, for leaving the rule of law. Well, hang on. So we, we've left the rule of law. To me, we've left the rule of law lots of times. Like you gave examples, Louisiana Purchase, um, ending slavery. Those those are good things. I like those. Uh, but there are lots of things that where we've done that we've done that that I think are bad things. Uh, and I'll, I'll extend your argument a little a little um, further. You point out there are countries that don't have a constitution that thrive. There are many countries that have a constitution that are awful. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so the Soviet Union exactly. had one. Um, right. But of course, there are many countries that don't have them that are awful. So the question is, and, and the countries that thrive without them often are parliamentary. We're not. Uh, I think that's part of the reason that they're able to have the system they have. I don't understand it thoroughly, so I can't, I'm not an expert. But um, my worry is that things that are now ruled out through both norms and the constitution – would become would get on the table. Let's let's talk about uh, our our friend Madison, uh, who was worried about factions. Do you think the Constitution currently plays any role in restraining uh, the rewards that go to special interests? Do you think it would be? I think it's pretty bad right now, and I think it's unconstitutional. What how special interests are often treated in the United States, and how industries are often benefited to the expense of at the expense of the rest of us. Financial industry being one, the farmers, agriculture being another. I think those are all unconstitutional. I think the bailout of the rescue of uh, many of the financial uh, sector companies in the last crisis is unconstitutional. I think the aid to farmers is unconstitutional. And you, we could debate whether those are good things or not. Obviously, many people thought they were good things, even though they were un possibly unconstitutional. But do you think that this would open a door to some rather unpleasant politicking that, that maybe right now is off the table? So, um, look, I, <laughs> it seems to me you've, you've really uh, assisted my argument. Um, all of the things that uh, you just mentioned are things that happened with constitutional obedience in place. Correct. Um, <laughs> and it's not, and, and that shouldn't surprise us because, you know, when you get down to it, um, what the Constitution is, is a piece of paper. Um, that's in the uh, National Archives. The Constitution doesn't have any troops. It doesn't order anybody to do anything. What, what in the end, what it, the glue that holds us together is not in a piece of paper and not in decisions made 250 years ago, some of which make sense, some of which don't. Uh, the glue that holds us together is um, the willingness of Americans now to um, be, or the ability of people like us to persuade Americans now to do what's um, in the best interest of the country. Um, so, um, look, Americans have a, a disturbing habit of thinking for themselves. And if you say to um, um, somebody, so, so you think that uh, aid to agriculture is unconstitutional. So if you say to somebody, um, we ought not to have aid to agriculture, and the person says, well, why not? And you say, well, I'm not going to give you any reasons. I don't have to give you any reasons. You've got to think aid to agriculture is unconstitutional because people 250 years ago said so. People, aren't, people are not willing to accept that, right? And, and they shouldn't accept it. Um, no. The obligation you have is to explain to people why now, government aid to agriculture is a bad thing. And in the end, what we think of as constitutional rights aren't going to survive unless folks can explain to their fellow Americans why these are principles that ought to be uh, accepted and, and, and not just something that sort of in an authoritarian way you tell people they have to accept whether they want it or not. Well, I, I guess I take a different perspective on that. So I, I actually – 
there are many things I, I know that I cannot persuade people of. Um, and we'll talk about those in a minute. Things that are deep philosophical differences that people have trouble convincing their their opponents of. But if I, if I think about well, okay, eight, but but if but I think then, about sorry, if, if I, think, I didn't mean to interrupt. That's all right. If I think about aid to farmers, uh, I know the farmers are most of them, not all of them, but most of them will like it. Um, I remember. I remember talking to a congressional staffer. I may have told the story before on the air. I apologize to the listeners, but it's it's a story that bears repeating. I, I remember talking to a congressional staffer on was left of center. Is uh, he represented a uh, his his representative was that he worked for was a a Democrat representing an inner city uh, constituency that was definitely left of center. And one of the things I said we could maybe all agree on is that that the quotas that limit how much sugar come into the United States. Are not good for America as a whole. They they mainly benefit ten to twenty families. I said something like that, and uh, when and when I finished, he said he kind of I could hear him on the phone kind of sheepishly say, "Well, it's, it's actually closer to five families. <laughs> it, it's even worse than, than it appears." Well, so, that's appalling. Yeah, it's appalling. appalling. So so that is some, that is a result, by the way, that occurs in a regime of constitutional obedience. Well, you could say that. I, I would argue that it is the fruit of your philosophy taken. Uh, writ large, which is don't pay real, don't really pay attention to it, pay lip service to it. The discussion should be, I mean, what we agree on is that we don't pay a lot of attention to it now. And I also agree with you that it'd be better to be honest about it than to pretend. But the question is, which direction should we head? You're suggesting we continue on that path. I'm suggesting we go back. I'm going to lose, probably. I think you're going to win. You're well, the tide so, of history. So, so here's here's my. My, the essence of my argument against your position. I think when you tell people um, this is the way you have to be, it has to be, whether you like it or not, and I don't have to give any arguments in support of it, that's deeply authoritarian. It's just authoritarian. Um, now, and, and, and by the way, I don't think uh, you have to do that. Um, you have... You're obviously just an intelligent person. You have arguments to support your positions. Why aren't I winning? Um, Why aren't I winning, Mike? Well, well on the ter- on the quotas, not on not on how so big government I, I, should be. Because you know, you know, look, um, we live in a very big, complicated country. Uh, uh, you don't always win. I don't always win. Um, but there are some kinds of ways of winning that seem to me that ought to be off the table, and one of them. Um, is just the insistence that it's my way or the highway, and you don't have a choice about it, and you're not even entitled to a recent explanation for why uh, the outcome is correct. So if, if I could, let me give you um, another example. Um, um, this may surprise you, but I'm um, more or less against gun control. I, I think I'm, I'm very skeptical of it. Um, so, um, and I'm, I'm eager to talk to people about gun control, but, um, if we're going to have the conversation, it seems to me my obligation is to tell you why I think it's objectionable. And I, I think I have a bunch of good reasons. I think it, it's not going to work. And if it did work, it would be, um, too costly um, so I think it's a mistake, and, and I'm happy to talk to people about why. But here's something I, I, I don't think I ought to do. I ought not to say, I don't have to give you any reasons why gun control is bad. It's enough that 250 years ago, a bunch of people um, living in a radically different country um, with, um, with, with things with things that were called guns that bear no relationship to the things we now have that are called guns, that those people might have, and by the way, it's not perfectly clear that they did, but that they might have been against gun control in their society. And therefore, you've got to be against it in your society. I don't think, if, if I were a, a proponent of gun control, I wouldn't be satisfied with that answer. And, and I don't think people should be satisfied with it. They're entitled People now are entitled to reasons why policies that um, other people advocate make sense in our country, not some other country that doesn't exist anymore. 
Well, I, you know, I totally agree with that, obviously. I think, you know, I don't think it's uh, to say, well, you lose, I win, Constitution. Uh, that is a, that's a way to shorten the discussion. It's not a way to educate or learn or persuade. Uh, I, I think we should talk about the reasons for things, but to suggest that because the founders ruled certain things off the table and because they set up a particular structure of governance – that it's a, therefore authoritarian, I think, if I may say so, misunderstands the goal. The no, goal. I think, I'm sorry, I, I, but I, I, maybe I'm misunderstanding, but I think you, you may be misunderstanding what I said. I'm not saying what the founders did was authoritarian. I'm saying that telling people now that I don't have to give you any reason for the policy that I favor, you just have to accept it. Because the Constitution says it, I think that is authoritarian. But but the reason that one invokes constitutional rules isn't because I want to get my way because there are many things the Constitution uh, should, I think, um, uh, dictate and and prevent that many of us might think are good or bad and, and disagree about. That The whole idea of constraint is to avoid mob rule. It's to avoid the power of factions. To live in a world where five families in Florida and the Dakotas, because they grow sugar beets and sugar cane, can extract large sums of money from the rest of us because they can. And they do have a little story about – I don't know if they even have – they don't bother to have a story. But I'd like that to be off the table. I think that's immoral. Well, so, so, <laughs> but, but you'd like it to be off the table because it's immoral. Not Correct. because it, not because the Constitution prohibits it. But the Constitution, Even if the Constitution didn't prohibit it, you'd you'd want it off the table. Uh, no, I would argue. Actually, I would. What I'm trying to argue, maybe not very well, is that the Constitution restrains the misbehavior of of, of human beings. Well, where those kind not. of where those kind evidently of immoral not things happen. There are these, well, evidently not because there are those five people getting these sugar subsidies that you think are immoral. So which way should we go? Should we go well, toward your world where we have to persuade the body politic, whatever that means, to not allow that, to make the case against it, which has been made very successfully, I think, but you could debate that. Or should we go toward my world where certain policies like that are off the table because they lead to that kind of misbehavior? So I, again, I, I – I, I think you're arguing more for my position than yours. I don't have any problem saying certain things should be off the table because they lead to misbehavior. I have a problem saying they should be off the table because people 250 years ago thought they led to misbehavior, even if those people are wrong. Um, and and by, by the way, I, I, I do think you are, if I could say so, you're overstating some. Um, the extent to which uh, the Constitution, in fact, provides the kind of settlement that you uh, value. For this reason, um, much of the Constitution is written in very broad language and very ambiguous language. And that fact has allowed people both on the left and the right, um, and I think both sides are equally guilty of this, if guilty is the right word, it's allowed them to read their own preferred settlement into the language. Totally agree. And so, so what you end up with is not um, the Constitution settling our arguments. What you end up with instead is people on both sides accusing the other side of violating our foundational document. And that's not uh, conducive to the kind of respectful and restrained debate we ought to have in a mature democracy. It, it, it leads to people – it raises the temperature, leads to people – accusing each other of being traitors to the country. Heretics, and, essentially. And, 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 and that's bad. So I'd much rather, um, again, take that off the table. Let, if, if you want to talk about, um, about uh, faction, for example, and, and special interest legislation, um, and, and indeed, if you want to quote Madison who had some very smart things to say on that subject. I don't have a problem with that. You know, Madison was a bright guy and he got some things right. He got some things very wrong. Also, he happened to own other human beings. Um, but, um, 
but using Madison's argument is fine. Saying you've got to do this just because Madison said so or just because he put it in the document is not fine, especially since uh, reasonable people can disagree about whether it's in the document. Yeah, no, I want to – I'll agree with you and I'll disagree with you. The the disagreement is that when when I – those of us who like the Constitution, I don't think we're saying, oh, well, well, Madison said so, therefore it's true. It's not an argument from authority. It's an argument about – the limits to human reason, the limits to political discourse, the limits to political governance that I want to hope we can get to at the end. But um, where, where I agree with you, and I think you make a, a very telling point, is that the document is ambiguous. And those of us who don't like what's happened under its name, we are, we are fooling ourselves a little bit in that we are saying not just that we want the Constitution. We want the Constitution that's the one we like, the one we interpret. Right. Yeah. So I and accept of course, that everybody point. does that. Yeah, everybody fair does enough. That. Fair enough. And by the way, there were there were some provisions. Just to get back to an original point, there were some provisions in the Constitution that are not ambiguous, but that I think almost nobody would favor today, and and either produce or have the potential to produce uh, really bad outcomes. And I. Uh, so let me uh, uh, just to give you pick one, one example. Yeah, pick one. Um, um, so this one, I, I live in the District of Columbia. I, I confess to living inside the Beltway. So this one hits home in a literal sense. Um, the Constitution is quite unambiguous that uh, the residents of the District of Columbia are ruled directly by Congress, and that they have no vote. In the people uh, for the people who ruled them. Now, I I, uh, I just don't think there are many Americans today who would say that's a good idea. Um, it's a, it's appalling. And uh, I, have to, I, have, um, I have to say it. Yeah, please. I I find that interesting that that's what you invoke because that's where you. It seems to me, and maybe I'm being unfair to you. It seems to me that's where you went ahead, right? I would you feel that much better? What's the fact that you don't vote – you know, I vote – I get to cast one vote for my representative. Uh, I've never voted for him, my actual representative. I voted against him every single election, uh, but I'm stuck. Uh, and so in some sense, I am unrepresented. I understand the process. So you're unrepresented also in a worse way. I accept that. But you're subject to the wisdom and whims of 435 people – Five hundred thirty is four thirty five or five thirty five? Is it the House well, or the Senate? Five thirty five, including the Senate. What? Five thirty five, no, including is the Senate. We don't the, have a vote in the House. We don't have a vote in the Senate. But do, who we rules no DC? Is it the House and the Senate, or just the House? The House and the Senate. Okay, so five hundred thirty five, somewhat well-meaning, flawed human beings. You're subject to their their whimsy, and it stinks. That's I, that's what I worry about in a world without a constitution, or or a world but, that. But the constitution. As you just said, because of the Constitution, my situation is even worse than yours is. Fair enough. <laughs> and, and so that – or um, another example, um, here's something just nobody would do today. So um, the, the president of the United States is chosen by um, electors. Good example. Those electors, those electors are um, – so far as the Constitution is concerned, they're legally free to vote for whoever they want. It's so, a thing. so we could um, – it hasn't happened recently, but um, we could have a president chosen by these 535 people who um, wasn't even on the ballot or, or didn't – you know, was soundly defeated. That's just nuts, right? I mean, Soundly defeated not sense. just by the majority but by the state – electoral process yeah, that we right, accept. Right. Yeah. Right. So so I, I I can't imagine there's anybody who thinks that that makes sense. Um, I'm um with you there. So we Okay. We should prob- we should probably change that. Uh and it's costly to change it, right? So right. it, it hasn't it, changed. It, I think more than costly, it's it's it, as a practical matter, it's impossible. Well um, or, or almost impossible. We haven't had um the Constitution hasn't been amended for several generations, and there's a good reason for that. It is, of all the national constitutions, it's the, not only the oldest, but also the hardest to amend. So we are stuck with these nutty 18th century judgments 
Well, let me, uh, let me say something in on behalf of Gridlock, which I think was the, <laughs> which was I think the impetus for your piece. You know, we're you're writing at a time when we're about to go over the fiscal cliff potentially, and talking you you invoke fiscal chaos in your first paragraph. Um, let me give you a counterpoint. And let you react to it. My thought is that the gridlock that we have right now, which you, you you're talking about gridlock writ large, that it's very hard to amend the constitution. It's also hard to get a lot of things done. Uh, we're having a lot of trouble right now agreeing on how to close a trillion-dollar deficit, whether we should at all. Uh, we can't agree on either of those things or how to make it happen. So let me argue that that's a feature and not a bug. Uh, there's a general, I think, perception that policy in America moves very slowly, and there's a lot more inertia here relative to Europe. And I think that's a good thing. If you go back to the recent string of presidents, Reagan to Bush, one, Clinton to Bush, two to Obama, aren't you a little glad that none of them got close to what they actually would have wanted, that we didn't swing wildly from the ideological and philosophical views of those different presidents? Instead, they push a little bit at the edges and we move in a general direction. I think that's a good thing. So, um, again, if I'm, I'm sorry to keep repeating myself, but I – uh, and maybe I'm misunderstanding you, but I think you're making my point. So, so what you just did is exactly what, to be pompous about it, what a citizen in a democracy ought to do. That is to say, you advanced a position and then you made an argument for it. Um, and that's the obligation all of us have when we talk to each other. So uh, what you didn't say is we ought to have gridlock because James Madison thought it was a good thing. And we don't have any right to disagree with what with his judgment 200 years ago. You explained why it's a good thing now. And those are good arguments. I mean, I, people make arguments on the other side. I'm, I'm not sure quite what I think of it. But what I am sure is that I think those are the kinds of discussions that, um, that we ought to be having. But I don't think gridlock's a good idea because James Madison is really smart. That would I know. Be- I, I think so. Good, good for you. No, but I, but I do think it's a good idea because it's the product of a system that James, that James Madison and others thought was a good idea no, no, that restrained so, so again, that restrained what people at the time, at any one point in time, no matter how smart or how wise they were, thought was a good idea. That there that it's a good idea to have limits on what centralized power can do. That's what I see as the wisdom of the Constitution, not. So, so the, not, not the wisdom of those, those particular men. There's a, a subtle distinction here that I think is really important to get a hold of. So um, constitutional disobedience does not mean disobeying everything that's in the Constitution. Um, um, to the extent that things that, that the framers put in the Constitution are good things, they ought to be obeyed because they are good things. And so you've pointed to one feature of the Constitution, which you consider a good thing, and uh, that ought to be followed because it's a, a good thing. There, there are other things in the Constitution that are not good things and ought not to be followed because they're not good things. So I, I, I could give you just another sort of trivial example, um, but it's one of my favorites. Um, the, the, the way in which we have appointed uh, um, elected senators um, since the um, since 1791, pretty clearly violates Article One. So, um, Article One um, provides that all senators serve six years, um, except for the first group of senators who were divided by lot into three groups who served two, four, or six years, so as to have staggered elections. So, in 1791, uh, Vermont becomes the first new state. And um, in the resolution um, making Vermont the first new state, Congress provides one senator is going to serve for six years and the other is going to serve for only four years. That's a violation of Article I. Um, And you know what? Um, Every state that's been admitted since then, Congress has done that. Um, When Alaska was admitted... Um, a backbench senator raised his hand and said, wait a second, this is unconstitutional. And the manager of the bill uh, told him to sit down and shut up because this is the way we do things. 
Um, and it's the way we ought to do things because um, it, we ought to have staggered election of senators. That's, uh, in, in fact, that that's one of the mechanisms that um, um, prevents faction, the fact that people aren't all elected at the same time. And but this was a glitch in the Constitution. They, you know, it was a long, hot summer in Philadelphia. They didn't have any air conditioning, and they made some mistakes. And this was a mistake. And so, very sensibly, what we've done is just ignored it. And last time I looked, there wasn't rioting in the streets, at least not because of this. God and His holy anger hadn't struck us down with bolts of lightning. Uh, you know, life goes on, and we're we're the better for it. Well. It's an interesting. Uh, it's a great example. It's and I think it's you're clearly right. It, it's an example where the Constitution was ignored. Everybody thought it was a good idea, except for the the strictest of strict constructionists, who that backbencher who right who, uh, who wanted uh, proper protocol followed and realized it wasn't going to happen, and everybody ignored him, which uh, it, it is to me. Not a big deal, but a little bit scary. I, I think the question is, um, yeah, I don't want to be ruled by the majority rule of the Congress, um, and I don't want to be ruled by the majority rule of Americans. And I see the Constitution restraining many natural urges that would run amok in a world where people are busy and can't pay as much attention as the people who have deep incentives to – manipulate the legal the legislative process and i certainly agree with you that sometimes it's okay that it, it's turned out okay but i think that should be our default that we should um we should respect some constraints other than the ones we place upon ourselves because people in my experience and i think in history ex experience don't do a very good job of that so i i just have to say um the vast majority of of people, and indeed the vast majority of law professors, uh, agree with you. So there, there must be something to what you're saying, um, and it does give me pause that that um, so few people um, see the point that I'm I'm making, and and that makes me think, you know, maybe I'm just wrong about it. Well, I'm alarmed. Some... I'm I'm equally alarmed because that's so rare for me. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I do think that um, some of this comes from misunderstanding. So again, um, I don't take a position on unrestrained majoritarianism, um, and I, I certainly understand your arguments against it, and I don't think my position rules out important checks on majoritarianism like a Supreme Court. Um, um, I just think, as I said, I think the court ought to be honest about what it's doing. I, I, I'm made very uncomfortable by people exercising power uh, through a mechanism that's designed to fool other people about what they're actually doing. And so we, I think the Supreme Court that. ought to come. They ought to come clean. But but if they do that, then um, you know it might be for the best that that. Um, Elites who who uh, are removed from the political process and may, one hopes maybe you've studied things a little harder um, would have the last word about at least some matters. I'm 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 not fully persuaded of that. I'm I'm agnostic. But but the important point for our purposes is that my position does not rule that out. I'm just not talking about that. Yeah. Well, I I, I really like your point about people who are either. Fooling others or maybe fooling themselves, I th and I think the Supreme uh, yeah. Court justices would fall into that category. By the way, not just right. not just right. the advocates of particular public policies. Um, there is something theatrically; uh, it's the theater of the absurd. When for me, when the justices invoke the reasons that they say for why they think the Constitution <laughs> says what it does, when I suspect well, I, it's mainly, I agree with you. They're, they're doing what they want to do and. Well, I agree left, with you, and I, the, the cognitive dissonance, I mean, I think it would be, um, it, it, being a Supreme Court justice is quite a job. I, I, they, they have to live every day with, at some level, a knowledge that, that what they're doing is just dishonest. 
and I don't know. I don't know. These are white people. Many of them are good people. I don't quite know how they do their jobs, how they get up in the morning and do their jobs. I think you're reducing the chance that you'll be appointed. <laughs> well, I think you're right. You're, I think that you're a courageous uh, man. It, it's not a job I would want in the first place. No, it is. It is. Told. It is a very strange job, and it, and I and I do think it involves a certain self deception. And I say that respectfully because I think we all self-deceive, all of us, and I, just, I don't think they're any different. But the idea that they're somehow the noble arbiters of, um, of, of the wisdom of, of the past is a little bit naive. I think it's um, – they vote their politics, their ideology, their philosophy. And of course, it changes over time. Some of them become different. And, and if, if I could say so, I mean I, I guess I've made this point already, but this is another example of it. One of the unfortunate things about constitutional obligation is that you have these people who are voting their politics, but it gets dressed up in a way where they say, not just this is what I think, but if you don't agree with me, then you're not a real American because you're not following the Constitution. Well, it's ironic because I'm arguing in my defense of the Constitution partly in the name of the limits to reason, the limits to reason debate, and certainly limits to the political governance process that, that it's healthy to have some overarching restraints on it because I think uh, – I believe very strongly in the, in the limits to reason and I'm putting myself in the, the Hayekian tradition and in the tradition of uh, Charles Peirce, the pragmatist who mm-hmm. similarly and very so much, I, I'm, very much I'm against sorry. the Cartesian – view that says if we just sit around, we'll figure out what's best because I think self-interest and power and, and other things are dangerous. But at the same time, I accept your point, which I think is very interesting, that in, in the name of using the Constitution, we can continue to make different kinds of mistakes. I just think they're smaller, I guess, is what, what, I, would, so what I would argue. I, 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 I'm also um, an, an admirer of Paris, and I agree with you about the limits of reason but in an odd way, that also supports my position because um, I, I think a lot of the hagiography about the Constitution ignores the limits of reason, including the limits of reason of the framers. Fair enough. So these Great were point. people who were exercising tremendous power, and people who've studied the ratification carefully, um, it turns out these people were not saints. Big surprise. Shocker. Shocker. Uh, Right. Uh, And they were not all-knowing. And a lot of of the drafting and ratification of the Constitution itself involved petty interest group deals, factions uh, struggling for control. Um, So um, it turns out, you know, the ratification almost didn't happen. And um, it would not have happened had Massachusetts not voted to ratify. Massachusetts would not have voted to ratify had the Constitution not been endorsed by John Hancock. And the reason why John Hancock endorsed the Constitution was because the Federalists made a bargain with him whereby they agreed to support him for the next election if he would endorse the Constitution. And, and that's, how it, that's how it got ratified. And, you know, if you, if, if you think that reason is limited then it seems to me we ought to be especially suspicious of people who think that they can think things through, not just for their generation, but for generations hundreds of years later. That's really quite arrogant. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if it's fair to accuse them of that degree of hubris. I think they put in the amendment process because I think they were – I assume because they were worried about that or maybe it was a selling point. Maybe it was just marketing. Um, but I assume – I don't know if they foresaw how difficult it would be to do to amend it, but it has been amended. Well, just not easy. It has been, and of course, it was easier to amend at that time because there were fewer states. Yeah. Um, um, but it, it's a it, it's been amended very few times. So there were the first ten amendments, which were part of the original bargain. Yeah, it doesn't count. Um, and then since then, if over uh, two hundred twenty five years, there have only been seventeen. Um. um the last one, the 27th Amendment is complicated, so I won't go into it, but the last one that was 
actually adopted, I think it was 1971. That's what, almost, what, almost 50 years ago, God help us. Um, so, um, I think we I th- are stuck with a lot of these judgments. But I, th- I think the fundamental issue, and then when I ask you one more question, we'll close, but I think the fundamental issue is, are there any restraints? It's great to have self-governance. It's, it beats the alternative. You need a system. This one has worked fairly well. If we opened it up to start from scratch, uh, most of us, I think, would be against that. Uh, but if we pushed it and nudged it in various directions, which we do already, uh, you're suggesting one sort of nudging. And I, I think um, I just go in a slightly different direction, I think, would be the. Well, fair enough. I, 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 I'm not in favor of starting from scratch. Um, we have well-established traditions, um, ways of doing things, ways of thinking about things. And those would not go away if uh, we got rid of constitutional uh, obedience. That's not clear, uh, by the way, right? It, it's not clear how no, much nothing's, of... Nothing's clear. They might go away even if we have constitutional no, that's obedience. True too. I mean, the, the, the world is... the future. <laughs> we can't know the future, and that's part of the point. So, no, nothing's clear. All of life is a risk. <laughs> Um, but, I, but I, I just think, um, to the extent we can tell, it's just very unlikely that it is this piece of paper, uh, under glass, um, a few blocks from where I'm sitting that is keeping us, uh, this keeping chaos at, at bay. I just don't believe it. Let me ask you a, a different issue to close on, which is you talked about, you got some hate mail. I'm not surprised. Um, you you implied that most professors of constitutional law that you've heard from don't agree with you. But I'd be curious if you want to talk about what kind of reactions you've got from fellow professors as well as how you think writing a piece like this affects your teaching. Uh, do you think it's going to change or is this already something you talk about i'm just that's what i'd be interested in knowing Mm -hmm. so uh, first of all i i I do want to i don't want to leave a misimpression about the mail that i've gotten there has been a lot of hate mail but there's also been um just from ordinary people um really interesting and thoughtful i think comments about what i've said some of it agreeing in part some of it disagreeing and one of the great pleasures of writing a book like this is that it gives you, a, or gives has given me a chance to talk to people who I never would have anything to do with about ideas that I'm interested in, and that it turns out um, they're interested in. So, so a lot of that's been just really terrific. And I've I've even had conversations with people who've started out calling me names and yelling and screaming, and after that sort of out of their system and we start to talk, it turns out that on some of this, we actually agree. And so that's of course, especially satisfying. Well, we're, 50, um, we're 57 minutes into this conversation. And I, I suspect there are some listeners who stopped listening early on. They're not hearing this part, but those who <laughs> made it through their uh, frustrations, I'm sure. I hope they've learned something. I well, have. thank you. I've, <laughs> I've certainly learned something from it. Yeah, I have too. Um, but talk, talk about um, your teaching, and I'm curious, because as so, you say, you've been teaching this for 40 years, and you suggest it in your piece of the Times. <laughs> well, close, you said, you said something close like that. 40. That, you know, that this is, you're surprised it took you this long to come to this view. How has it changed, and how will it change your teaching? Well, I don't think it changes it a lot in the sense that I, I am preparing students to be lawyers. Um, as lawyers, they need to understand constitutional doctrine and to understand arguments and to be able to advance the arguments and to, to know, um, you know what the law is and what the Supreme Court says. So all that is uh, the same. I also uh, have absolutely no ambition to convince or indoctrinate people uh, a good class, by my standards, is one where um, I've had to think and the students have had to think, um, not one where people come away necessarily thinking one thing or another. So these are issues that I certainly discuss in class. Um, 
I um, raise arguments that maybe the students haven't heard before, but they argue back. Sometimes if somebody's supporting my view, I argue back because I want them to think harder. Um, but I don't expect or even want people to come away from my classes agreeing with me. What, what I want them to come away from the classes is holding the view they hold in the most sophisticated form that it can be held. And that's my ambition as a teacher. But does it have these issues when you when you were starting out as a professor, you had a different perception of the Constitution, presumably. Is this perspective that we're talking about of constitutional disobedience, you think it's going to. Does it affect how you teach and, and what you teach? No, it, does, it doesn't affect um, how I teach or what I teach. Um, I, I may raise some issues that just hadn't occurred to me. 20 or 30 years ago to talk about, but um, I don't know whether you've ever seen a, a, a law school classroom. It, 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 the best law school classrooms are Socratic. So the, the job of the professor, I, my job is to ask critical questions about any argument that a student makes, um, whether they're, they're on my side or another side, uh, because the the object is to try to get the student to think as hard as the student can think about the issue. A very admirable goal. My guest today has been Lewis Michael Seidman. Thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Just a tremendous pleasure. Thank you so much. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.